Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Well, hello, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, Lori LeBay, and we are going to have a brilliant show for you today, one that I think is such a needed and important conversation for us all to just take a pause and listen to what the needs and what the thoughts of others are. You may or may not agree with everything you hear, but you know, how often do you? Um, this is a time to expand your mind and your heart. And I encourage people to listen with compassion. And I also encourage people to call in and uh, participate in the conversation. Um, but before I introduce our guests, and we've got quite a few, we've got a panel of 10 for you to hear. We have decided to devote the full two hours uh, to this show, this taboo discussion about life and death with dementia. But I want to um, first, again, because we always get new listeners, explain a little bit about Alzheimer's Speaks, who we are and why we're here. Bottom line, we are an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We believe by joining forces and sharing knowledge and having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, we're going to be able to remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help those living with the disease live with purpose. Together, we can help everybody understand the true needs if we just sit and pause and take a minute and truly listen to one another. Ask those core questions that sometimes are spooky because we're not sure we want to hear the answers. Alzheimer's Speaks believes collaboratively we can win this battle against dementia. And I know that it's working because the power of all of us working together got Alzheimer's Speaks recognized as the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's disease. And that recognition is not about us. It's about all of us because it's your clicks, your likes, you taking that moment in time to just tweet us out, share it with your Facebook friends, share it with your LinkedIn groups, having a conversation because so often there are people touched by this disease that are close to us that we don't know because no one's brave enough to have the conversation. So today we've got 10 very brave souls talking about a very taboo topic and I hope that you'll all be um, appreciative and respectful for their time and consideration and their thoughts that they're going to share with us on this topic. 
Um, uh, I always get questions from people in terms of how do I participate in the show. And so if you're listening online, you can utilize your chat box, and I'll be monitoring that as the show goes. I'll try to pull in um, as much comment and questions as possible, but this is a pretty packed show. If not, we can always have a second show and a follow-up show. Uh, you can always call in as well to the line, and that is 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. And then you'll just have to push one to get into my queue so that I know that you're there. And again, when I see a break in the conversation, I will come back out um, there's some resources that I think are important to mention, uh, just a few associations. The Alzheimer's Disease International, which is the association of all Alzheimer's uh, associations around the world, is a fabulous place to be able to go and gain knowledge, information, and stats and find what is closest to you. There is also the... Um, Louis Body Association, and we also have the Frontal Temporal Lobe uh, Association. These are, are critical um, and different uh, types of dementia where I really think that you can find some additional support uh, for, for both you and your loved one that you're caring for. The Alzheimer's Studies has a, a tau clinical trial going on now. So if you just Google Alzheimer's Studies or you can go to the Alzheimer's team on Facebook. And then, of course, the Purple Angel Project uh, started by Norms McNamara over in the UK, which is really all about utilizing one global symbol, the Purple Angel, uh, to help identify and raise awareness for dementia. So let me get on to today's show. Our title is Life or Death with Dementia, the Taboo Conversation. And again, we're going to be devoting the full two hours to this conversation, and we have a variety of people um, and their thoughts on living and dying with dementia. Should one have the ability to decide when to end their life? If so, when and under what circumstances? We'll hear from those living with the disease, care partners, doctors, authors, hospice workers, attorneys, and advocates. And again, we'd love to hear from you as well. My guess is you're going to be pretty dang surprised on what you hear in this conversation because I'm telling you, I'm pretty experienced and knowledgeable, and I was shocked at some of the things that I learned. And I think everyone needs to know. I would also like to just note that Alzheimer's Speaks understands and appreciates that not everyone is going to agree with any or all of the comments on the show. And I never expect you to. This is about a conversation. This is about freedom of speech. This is about learning what the true needs and thoughts are out there because we can't help people if we don't have conversations. So again, I urge you to call in and join the conversation. Let your opinion be heard or feel free to write me afterwards or um, comment on the blog. That'll have a bigger audience if you want your comment heard versus the radio show, just the way I push things out. And 
Um, you know, we don't really take a stand one way or, or the other on Alzheimer's Speaks. Again, it's about having a respectful conversation, sharing knowledge, and sharing perspectives. I think that that is critical. Um, our goal is to get the topic off the taboo list. It's our belief that we need to learn more about how everyone deals with this diagnosis, and not everybody deals with any diagnosis the same way. So why should we think it should be any different with dementia? Um, I would like us to really go with the flow of what are the needs of those with dementia, what are their concerns, how can we help them live better with dementia. To me, this is really what the show is about, quality of life, and how is that defined and helping people define that, um, giving them some tools to do that. This is not a show where we're going to talk about uh, dive into specific ways on how to end your life. Um, you know, it, it's going to be a very wide, broad um, topic here. And we're going to learn, um, again, from a lot of different angles, which I think is very, very critical. So what questions do you have? What thoughts of yours do you want heard? And, again, we encourage you to not be quiet on this topic um, just like dementia is blooming um, over in the U.K. and starting here in the U.S., people are becoming dementia-aware and dementia-friendly. This is all part of that process. So first, I'd like to introduce um, Michael Ellenbogen. Um, he is really the thought leader behind this show. Uh, Michael is the one who approached me and said, Lori, this this can't wait any longer. It's time. And so um, for those of you that don't know Michael, Michael was diagnosed with young onset Alzheimer's at the age of 49. Prior to his diagnosis, he was a network operations manager for a Fortune 500 financial institution. And due to difficulty at work, um, due to his disease, you know, he was led to early retirement. Now he is a world-renowned Alzheimer's and dementia advocate. He's been featured in nationally syndicated TV, radio, and other media outlets. He's written for blogs, newspapers, websites, and has shared his personal perspective as a, as a speaker. He currently serves on the Pennsylvania uh, Alzheimer's Disease Planning Committee and other uh, advisory councils. He's a regular speaker at the Advisory Council on Alzheimer's Research, Care, and Services and has been featured in the Alzheimer's Disease International 2012 um, in 2012, uh, he's interested very much in motivating those with Alzheimer's to raise their voice and reduce the stigmas of the disease. Michael is really one of the pioneers um, in Alzheimer's advocacy, and I am just thrilled to, to be associated with him, and I, I love working with him. If you haven't joined us for Dementia Chats, which he and both Dina Dotson, who are on the show today, are part of, I would encourage you to do that. So welcome, Michael. How are you today? Great, Lori. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, what, what was the itch behind having this show? Um, why did you feel so passionate that this was so critical to do? Well, first of all, let me thank you so much for allowing me to put the show together and addressing a subject that everyone was afraid to address. 
so many organizations out there say how they are out there to support us with dementia, but none of them had the courage to speak to us about this topic that so many of us want to talk about. It's basically taboo, even for the people living with it. I have found that almost, if not more, of all those living with YOAD, which is young onset Alzheimer's disease, want to take their lives early. At first, I thought it was just me, but as I went and checked into this, I found out that there are so many reasons that these people need a place to talk about it freely. For some reason, the older population who is living with dementia doesn't feel the same way. And I'm not sure why, but it's up to the researchers to figure that out. So for this reason, we must talk about this. People need to become more involved and help us and not turn a blind eye because it's happening around us every day, and the laws need to change. This is why this show is so important, Lori. It, it really is. And I, like I said, I, I really appreciate the fact that that you came to me um, to pull this show together because, um, in all honesty, um, it's just it is one of those topics that's very, very difficult. Um, for myself, I know that I, I find when I think about this topic, um, two different answers. For me, if, if I was in this, a situation where I couldn't control my body or my thoughts um, and wasn't able to live at a certain quality of life, I would like the right to change, uh, to take my life. And, and to be able to have a dignified end. But on the other hand, when I answer that question for my mother, who is in her end stages and has been for four years, um, I, I would have thought that I would have made the same choice. Yet in those four years, even though we're not able to communicate much, the depth of the moments that we do, I would have hated to lose. And again, I know that's making it about me versus her. Um, but I do think that that's something that has to be thought about in the equation because no matter what side of the fence you're on, we're, we're still projecting a communication because I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, but I also think it has to do with perceptions of of burden. So what what would make you um want to take your own life? What have you have you thought about a list of where you're at and and what that what that would look like for you? Um you said you've you've talked about it um you know for yourself and I'm sure you know maybe or maybe not with family. Um but are there are there certain things, like in a living will or something, that you've thought about that this would be the point? No more would I want to be here. Michael, are you there? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't know that was directed to me. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, Michael. Yeah, I'm I'm one of those who wants to take my life early. But I also want to clarify, I don't want to take my life as early, you know, I want to live life as long as possible while I have good years. You know, 
people who have progressed, you know, with this disease, they're they're, they're suffering. You know, people who have, I guess, a, a progressive disease today, they suffer, and they're they're allowed to be put out of their misery, you know, with dignity, and in a way, and, and they can die the way they want to. Like for example, after many years of battling with cancer, my sister one day said she no longer wanted to live, and she was going through a lot of pain and suffering. She told her doctor that morning, and the doctor said it was okay. The family was called. We all said our goodbyes within six hours. She had passed away and finally in a peaceful place and was no longer in pain. We all felt better knowing she was in a better place and no longer suffering. This all happened with the number of constant dosages of morphine, which kept being increased until she was finally at peace. We all know what happened. It's Mm -hmm. not talked about. It happens every day. And no, I'm not in a state that allows for assisted suicide by a physician, but this happens around us. But we choose not to speak about it. I have made the choice that I want to take some kind of concoction when the day comes and I can no longer be on my own. If I require for someone to take care of me or to babysit me, that to me is no longer life. There are many other reasons for my thinking this way. I live every day with many kinds of pain from non-related issues. I'm able to manage them today most of the time, but I could not do that if I was in serious pain and no one knew it, you know, you know, because of dementia, you know, you, you can't communicate those things. That, to me, would be worse than torture. Then I don't want to be also remembered in what I've become. This is a devastating disease. I would like people to know me for who I was, not even for, for what I've become even today. Another issue, I would never want to put my wife and family through the hell uh, that this disease will bring. No one should ever have to endure that. Then there's a reason that most people cannot seem to understand. I was able to save money, and I wanted the money to go to my family rather than waste it on me for something that will prolong my death in an agonizing way. One thing that most people don't understand is that while we look normal today, we're able to even communicate well at times. We are living in pain. While it's not physical, like cancer, but it's mental anguish, which can sometimes be even worse. Why would we not be able to be entitled to die with dignity, like other people who have a serious illness? All because we have some kind of dementia? Wow. This is a a cruel world to make us suffer even more than any other disease. Please allow us to have that choice. It would be so great if we could make a decision today when I'm of sound mind to say at what point in my life I would want to be given the concoction so I can live as long as possible and I do not have to take it much longer just because of the thought. 
as I may not be able to remember. That's the real disaster to my family and I. So I please plead with the people here today to help change the laws so we can even stop the suffering and so we can die with dignity. That, that's pretty much it, Lori. That's, that's the, you know, what has to happen. Well, and it, it is interesting, um, and we'll get into this more, but I did not realize some of the laws and, and how they came into play. And I think what I'm going to do at this point is I'm going to go ahead and um, pull in, I think we're going to go ahead and pull in Dr. Frank Cavanaugh and um, Robert Riveris, uh for part of this conversation. So um, for those of you that aren't familiar with Dr. Kavanaugh, he serves on the advisory board of Final Exit Network, and he's been a health educator for 40 years. He is a retired professor of medical and public affairs at the George Washington University Medical Center and the professor of communications with an adult chair at the George Washington University. He's a chairman emeritus of the International Academy for Preventive Medicine and the former vice president of the Cooper Institute for Advanced Studies in Medicine and Humanities. His years in the medical community helped him understand the tremendous advances um, that we've made to intervene in patients' health issues and improving lives. But... Also, too often, he found the medical community walks away from patients in the most critical time of their lives when nothing more can be done to relieve suffering. In addition to Frank, um, we also have their legal counsel here, Robert Rivera. So I would like to, um, you know, welcome Frank. How are you today? I'm fine, Lori, and I thank you and thank Martin so much for uh, for having this dialogue. Uh, you know, the more we can talk about it, the more it helps people to make decisions that are, are there for them. Um, you talked a bit about how I came to this from my years in the medical center and what I wanted to do when I retired. Um, and I should just say a little bit about what Final Exit Network is. It is a nonprofit organization that's been around since, uh, oh, nine years now. And we are 3,000 volunteers and members uh, who believe that mentally competent adults have a basic human right to end their lives when they suffer more than they can bear from a terminal or an irreversible illness, and that we believe that such a right shall be an individual choice, including the timing and the compassion free of any kind of restriction by the law, by clergy, by the medical profession, even by friends and relatives, no matter how well-intentioned they may be. Um, It's important to note that we do not encourage anybody to end their life, and we do not provide the means for them to do so, and we do not actively assist in a person's death. Uh, We do see this as the ultimate civil right of the 21st century, just like women's suffrage was in the 20s and racial rights in the 60s and the rights of the disabled in the 90s and we operate basically by exercising our first amendment right of free speech and for members who are suffering from an irreversible medical condition uh, that choose uh, uh, to end their life and are accepted into our program we provide them with pertinent information about how to end their life in a painless quick inexpensive humane fashion 
And should a person choose that kind of self-deliverance, uh, we have a number of safeguards in place to make sure that the decision is voluntary and repeatedly ask. Uh, we provide the most current information and caring support for folks. And information can, can be found about us on the website, finalexitnetwork.org, and uh, there is much more uh, about what we, uh, uh, what we do there. Uh, Alzheimer's is a particularly different issue for us because when you look at uh, Huntington's disease, you know, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease like Stephen Hawking has and so forth, um, they don't necessarily have the window of opportunity that Alzheimer's has. And there comes, I often, I often look at myself and say, if I were diagnosed with Alzheimer's, I would probably get a second opinion from a very good neurologist. I would get a third opinion from another very good neurologist. And if they all agreed, then I would take four or five months and clean up all my affairs, and I would hasten the end of my life because I can't think of anything worse than losing all of the memories and the recognition of my loved ones um, and all of that. Now, there is a window of opportunity in there where I have understood that I've been diagnosed with this disease. I know where it's going to go over some period of time. If I wait too long, I will no longer be able to cognitively to do the simple task to acquire the means or physically, perhaps, the simple task to actually hasten the end of my life. So I have to make a decision uh, while I still have that mental and physical capability to do those things um, that I wish to proceed with the end of my life and to, and to hasten the end of my life. And, you know, that is a very individual decision. I would not suggest that anybody else in that situation should do it. Uh, you know, this, it is an individual human right, and, uh, and we just have, I think, the freedom to choose for ourselves, not for anybody else what they should do, but for ourselves what is right for us when we begin to lose what we regard as all quality to our life that makes it worth living. Does that help? Sure. Thanks for having me on, Lori. By the way, it's Robert Rivas. Um, the, um, the the biggest issue is that there are many in the law enforcement community who uh, perceive their individual statutes in the states across the country. Again, there, uh, 37 states have laws against assisting in a suicide. Our understanding of those laws is that they may only be applied in this country in light of the right to free speech. They may only be applied to somebody who actually commits a physical act of assistance or provides the means by bringing something to the uh, person who chooses to uh, uh, chooses self-deliverance. We feel like Final Ex what Final Exit Network is, does is uh, is legal all across the country because Final Exit Network does not, carefully does not lift a finger to provide any physical assistance um, and does not bring anything to the scene to uh, provide any kind of assistance in anyone's death. After careful analysis of the 
circumstances of the person, confirmation of their their the severity of their condition. Final Exit Network volunteers provide information and education, uh, counseling, moral support, uh, show people how to do it and ensure that they're not going to botch it, which is a, uh, a terrible fear a lot of people have because they could w- wind up worse off uh, than they were before if they if they botched their effort to uh, uh, cause their own deaths. So Final Exit Network is just a group of people who do do that without performing what is legally defined as being assistance. Um, we have this question pending in the state of Minnesota where uh, there's a law that prohibits people from giving information to to anybody or providing any kind of uh, moral support. Uh, it's a, a crime in Minnesota to say to somebody who intends to uh, hasten their death to say, I understand what you're doing. I, I believe you're doing what's right for you, and I respect your right to do that. That would be labeled criminal encouraging in Minnesota, and so far the uh, the courts of Minnesota have sustained our view that that can't be made a crime anywhere in the country under the First Amendment and that there has to be, in order to prosecute anybody for assisting in a suicide, there has to be some kind of active assistance, which Final Exit Network doesn't, doesn't do. And how that relates back to what Frank was saying is that during this window, if somebody in the case of, an, of a dementia patient, uh, as they progress through their experience and evolve to a point where they are soon going to become uh, incapable of giving fully informed consent and making a fully informed decision on their own about what they're going to do, uh, once they cross that threshold, Final Exit Network can't help them anymore, and Final Exit Network can't, uh, can't do anything uh, uh, provide any emotional support at the bedside or otherwise give any information, we'll just sort of have to terminate any efforts to uh, provide them with support once they get to the point where they can't physically uh, accomplish their own uh, uh, self-deliverance and where they're not mentally co- competent to make that decision. So a lot of people, even though they might have otherwise had some period of time left in their lives, um a lot of people make an intelligent decision that they don't want to go past that threshold that they don't want to, that window of opportunity to close and in those cases uh final exit network is 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 willing to make the decision to give support to people with uh uh pr- proven cases of dementia who are are making a, a thoughtful and intelligent decision uh to to hasten their death because we just don't think it's up to us to second guess their uh, their their uh, their well considered choices. Well, Lori, we approach. I was going to say we approach that very carefully too. I don't want anyone to feel that it's something that is rushed into hastily. Uh, a person who comes to us um, first of all has a phone consultation. They're required to submit material in writing. They're required to submit their medical records. Those medical records are evaluated by a team of physicians and psychologists. The person then has a face-to-face interview, and only after all those steps have been gone through, um, if they make the determination that the person has indeed is indeed making a rational decision, has 
is suffering to the point that they can no longer bear, only at that point will we provide them with the information and support. So there is very much of a vetting process before anyone gets this information and support. Okay. Well, what's really interesting what Robert was saying about Minnesota, because that's where I live. <laughs> I did not even know that was going on here. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's very surprising. Um, you know, all of the information um, that's out there that we just can't all know unless we have conversations like this. So it's so it's so critical um, to do this. I'm going to go ahead and pull in um, Derek Humphrey right now, and I'll pull you guys back in. But Derek is on a, uh, on a time frame here, and I don't want to miss out um, on his on his input here. So I very much want to thank Frank and, and Robert for their input. And we will come back because you guys are all kind of <clears throat> mixed together in this. So Derek Humphrey was married for 22 years when his wife developed inoperable cancer. He nursed her for two years until she asked him to help her die. Close to the end, Jean chose to end her life with lethal drugs to avoid further suffering. In time, Derek married again and moved to America, and in 78, he published a little, a little book, Jean's Way, describing her final years and his part in helping her die peacefully. It became a bestseller and was translated into major languages. The public response to this book caused him to start the Hemlock Society in the U.S. in 1980 from his garage in Santa Monica. And the Hemlock's purpose was to help people in similar situations to genes and also reform the laws to prohibit or to permit physician-assisted suicide. Gene's choice, <clears throat> chosen way of dying, um, you know, basically prefigured the laws uh, later passed for physician-assisted suicide by prescriptions. Gene's way helped change the debate from voluntary um, in euthanasia to an acceleration of death by terminal patients choosing to drink a prescription lethal potion. Such laws now exist in a few states, Oregon, Washington, Montana, and Vermont. Derek built the Hemlock into a national organization with over 40,000 members and 80 chapters. So don't think for a moment that this topic is not being discussed and that people aren't talking about it. Um, we need to learn about this more. In 1991, he wrote Final Exit, which is a how-to book for the dying to bring their suffering to an end if they choose. To um, uh, his surprise, it became a bestseller within six months. It's been translated into 12 languages. Random House keeps the third edition of Final Ex Exit in print and is still uh, in print in Spanish and in Italian. USA Today in 2007 chose it as one of the most significant books in the past 25 years. That's uh, that's pretty incredible. Welcome, Derek. How are you this morning? I'm pretty well, thank you. Thank you for asking, and hope you are well, too. Yes. Sounds well, like I'm, 
I'm thrilled to have you with us. And I wonder, you know, you are really a true pioneer um, in this whole um, thought process of dying with dignity. And can you share with us um, some of the specific conversations that that you and your wife had um, to come to this conclusion? I, I mean, I can't imagine it was an easy choice, um, and it had to have been a difficult conversation. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. Can you give us some insight into that? Well, because this back, happened back in 1975. Uh, in fact, she asked uh, about dying, first of all, in 1974, and the, the topic of uh, right to die, euthanasia, assisted suicide, whatever you call it, was not really in, in the public field. I, I'd no, I had never heard, although I was a, a newspaper reporter on the London Sunday Times, I, I hadn't come across the subject. It hadn't raised its, its head publicly. But Jean herself thought this through. She'd seen her mother five years earlier die a painful unprepared death from lung cancer and she wasn't looked after properly for, with pain medicine and so forth so in the couple of you know the long time that Jean spent in cancer wards in Oxford Hospital in England she she saw a great deal of death going on and she made her own philosophy as, as to what to do about her own and she realized that uh, death would come to her before too long. Um, so one, one afternoon, she, uh, when I went in to see her, and she'd been very, very ill. I, I thought she was going to die the previous week, and so did the doctors. But she pulled through. She, she, she didn't want to die. And she just said to me, um, I'll, I'll cut it short, just, um, I want you to help me to die. And I was so ignorant at the time. I said, "I will," but what do you want me to do? You know, I I hadn't thought through what one does. And she said, "Go to a doctor, ask for um, a, a lethal overdose of drugs, put them to one side, and when I'm ready to go, uh, you give them pan to me, and I take them and die." Um, so it was her her philosophy. And she told people around her, this her close friends, not she didn't broadcast it, but her close friends, she told people that that was what she was going to do when when the end came. Okay, that that had to be, I mean, I, it had to take you just kind of back, um, but then you can understand where somebody is coming from when they've gone through it and they've seen it. And, um, you know, everybody wants to live the perfect life. Everybody wants to just you know, go to sleep and die in peaceful, but it, it's not like that for most. And, um, you know, I, there's, I think, great fear in terms of being a burden to others and, you know, not being able to care for yourself and, um, you know, all of that comes comes into play, you know, with that. Um, when you went to the doctor, what what kind of response did you get there? Well, he, he grilled me as, as to what her medical condition was um, and then what had been happening and what treatment she'd got and what drugs she was using and, and uh, where, the, where the situation was. And uh, after I told him, he said uh, she has no quality of life left and, and she won't last much longer. 
uh, her bones were already beginning to break because uh, the cancer had spread to her bones. And uh, he said, uh, here's the, uh, um, the lethal uh, drugs. Uh, just never say where, of course, we were acting illegally uh, uh, back, back then in 1975. And uh, he said, never, never let it be known that I was the, uh, per- was the person who handed this. And uh, he gave me the uh, drugs, which I took home, put away carefully, uh, out, out of sight and, and out of uh, touch. And uh, six months later, she asked me for the drugs. So it was not hasty. It was uh, a very thought-out decision, uh, and only when she was ready to go. But she had the forethought to think ahead. She didn't want to go like her mother had had gone. I see. Um, now, can you tell us a bit more about the Hemlock Society and exactly what what do you do? I didn't really get into that. And if you could share a little bit more um, about what the organization is about, that would be wonderful. Yes, it, it, uh, the Hemlock Society. I started in 1980, five years after Jean's death. It, it and it was because of the reaction to my book, Jean's Way. Enormous amount of people um, approached me uh, and, and said, you know, what were the drugs? How was it done? What are you going to do about it? People said, you know, uh, are you going to change the law? So I was, I had hundreds of letters came in because um, I was then working for the Los Angeles Times. So people could just arrest address letters, Derek Humphrey, Los Angeles Times, and they would get me without a full address. And I realized I had to do something about it. There was a public demand, and I gathered like-minded people around in Los Angeles and from the universities and medical people and legal people, and we decided to start the Hemlock Society, and that which would uh, give advice and counseling to people about uh, ways in which they could consider taking their lives now if they were dying at the present, and that the with a second bow to our, our fiddle, we, we right from the start said we are going to work for intelligent laws on physician-assisted suicide so that it would be doctors who uh, were really involved in this, not the families. It would be the uh, the individual. Families would know, and be, but um, we felt that the medical profession, because it has the power over drugs and it has the knowledge of terminal illnesses, should be involved. And it's been a long fight <laughs> uh, to, to get those laws. And we, the Hemlock Society, has... Uh, not done it alone, but we've been a big helper in, in, in getting some laws passed already. But the Hemlock Society disappeared in in, in 2003. I'd, I'd retired from it, and it was merged in, into another organization. So it doesn't e- exist at the moment, the Hemlock Society. Okay, but there's another organization similar to the Hemlock Society that it merged yes, into? Yes, well, the Final Exit Network. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does does the similar work? 
Okay. Okay, doke. Wonderful. Um, how how did you feel when you had to like keep battling this all the time? You know, you know, with the laws and and things. I, I can imagine that there were some pretty passionate discussions um, that you went through and, and yes. could get fairly heated. You know, because people have their religious beliefs and. But I think all of that's wonderful. You know, everybody um, has different beliefs, but trying to get people to respect that there's there's more than one belief out there, and um, you know how to get that through. So what what was that like in terms of of just trying to tell your story and, and persuade people of the need? Well, I, luckily I was fairly well prepared. Uh, I was a, a an investigative journalist uh, all my life uh, and I'd done quite a lot of I'd written books about police corruption and racial prejudice and uh, so forth and I'd been on television debating these hot topics uh, for 10 or 20 years before uh, I came into the right to die movement so I, I had a sort of grooming in advance of, the, of how to handle these matters and uh so when when the controversy started and and it boy it did um we were debating in universities on the radio on television in rotary clubs and also we were um much in demand to to, to debate this and it was very uh, exciting and worthwhile and we met uh, a great many supportive people and a, a good many uh, non-supportive people, but uh, we we found uh, a base for our, our feelings, and, and uh, it grew and grew. Okay. Um, in terms of, I, I appreciate you so much taking the time, and I know that you have to run here in, in just a couple of minutes. Um, if someone is in this quandary, like like you were with your wife, um, asking to die, what would be what would be the two things that you would suggest to them? Well, one, uh, think it over, and talk it over with with the closest family, if if that is possible. Uh, sh- share this decision with 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 the closest family to, to see whether um, you're acting sensibly just to test your ideas and so forth. Um, secondly, I, I would say um, read my book, Final Exit. Um, it can be got on the web or it's just a paperback. It's, it's not, and it's very, very readable. Um, and third, I would suggest they uh, consider joining the Final Exit Network. And uh, go about it carefully, thoughtfully, and uh, wherever possible, involve close family and close friends confidentially. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with may, us May today. I say, just mention one mm-hmm. more thing. Sure, sure. Yeah, we, we, we have a special living will at, at my organization called My Last Wishes in the Event of an Irreversible Cognitive Decline. This is a, this is a, 
unusual living will dealing only if you think you are going to get Alzheimer's or go into dementia. And it sets out over four pages, uh, five pages, uh, what, if your condition deteriorated um, due to uh, loss of cognitive function, then this is what you want would happen. You wouldn't wish to be kept alive. Now, this document helps. I mean, it doesn't have legal force, um, but it's an intelligent and thoughtful expression of your wishes should you uh, go into uh, uh, Alzheimer's, that you, you would wish to be left alone and, and, uh, and to die when you are uh, incompetent. Okay. Quite a lot of people uh, download this from our website and, and sign it. It's a comfort, and it's an indi intelligent indicator of uh, your last wishes. Which is which is a good thing. I mean, everybody's encouraged to do living wills, and you know, I I think that that's a good conversation to have if you have dementia or not, um, yes. so that everybody is on the same page. Because the the fear and the guilt alone has got to be just horrendous. And um, again, you know, I, for me, I could say that you know I would probably want to be in that position to be able to have the choice if I choose to take it or not. But then I look at caring for my mom, even like I said earlier, she's been in her end stages for four years, um, and a lot of people would say she has no life or, or you know, nothing to add, and she's, she's not having quality of life. But yet we've had these few moments that have been really short but powerful and really life-changing for me. And, you know, how do we know if those things are going to happen or not? We're, we don't. And, no. oh, and no. so everyone, ha everyone has to evaluate that. And is a moment in time, you know, a few moments in time worth four years? I mean, yeah. you know, you got to weigh that, that out as well. So, again, there's no – I don't think there's any right or wrong – answer but it's questions that we need to ask ourselves and a yeah. discussion that that is yeah. extremely important it's, to have it's key to think your philosophy through make preparations sign a few re the documents that you consider relevant and then go on with life <laughs> press on with life but make some prefer thoughtful preparations exactly exactly All right. well thank you Thank you so okay. much for your time today. And yes, um, fi and Final Exit is um, www.finalexit.org. And so you can feel free to, to go there. And Derek's book is available on Amazon as well. So, again, thank you and enjoy your day, Derek. Okay. Thank you for having me. Interesting conversation. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, Robert, I'm going to pull you back in because you know, we're talking about, you know, living wills and, and um, you know, how we want to end our life. Um, is this our, if people put their wishes in writing, um, that still doesn't make it legal. Am, am I correct in that? How does, the, how does that work? How is that interpreted? The, the – Every state in the union now has a law regarding living wills, and it authorizes everybody to sign a document that explains what their desires are when they are in a condition where they're not um, 
they're not capable of making decisions for themselves, and there is no uh, uh, prospect for them to get up out of the wa uh, hospital bed and and ever walk you know out again, and they're being maintained alive uh, by artificial uh, means. And it's an instruction to the healthcare facility, uh, to the person's doctor, that they have made a, an intelligent made an intelligent decision back when they signed it to instruct them to uh, discontinue life support under those conditions. It's not at all uh, uh, the same thing as either physician aid and dying or uh, or an individual's choice to actively. Uh, cause their own death. It only applies in, in the circumstance when somebody's uh, beyond the ability to make a decision, to express a decision on their own, and the doctors confirm that there is nothing that can be done for them except uh, to either maintain them alive on artificial life support or not, and that, that the, the, the living will uh, expresses the individual's choice as to what, how they want to be treated under those circumstances. Okay, great. Michael, I'm going to pull you back in and just see if you have any anything that you want to um add after after hearing Derek and Frank and and um Rob talk a little bit about final exits and the Hemlock Society. Well, I have to tell you, Lori, I think uh while I like what Final Exit is doing, uh what I don't like the idea is that many of us who are living with the disease are kind of forced to have to take their lives earlier uh, just because the laws aren't there for us. If we could have the assisted suicide where we could plan ahead and to decide, I think it would be just so much better. And I think the people from Final Exit would agree if the laws were to be changed to just be able to delay these things much longer. And that's what I think we should be working towards is – to not shorten these people's lives, but to extend them to be able to be longer lived and have a better life so people aren't forced to feel that, well, I may not remember to take that concoction or to be able to do it on my own and to be able to rely on somebody to help us, whether it's a family member, to be able to do it legally, or to have it with the help of a doctor through assisted suicide by a doctor. That's what we should be looking to change, and that's what – I would hope that this program is going to reach out to the rest of the world to engage people to think that way. Good, good point, good point. And, again, if we've got any listeners, we'd love to hear from you as well. What are, what are your thoughts on this topic? Um, Frank, is there um, anything else that you, you wanted to add? We kind of talked about, you know, is it legal? And we touched on a, on a few states. Did I, did I cover the correct ones? Um, you Yes, you did. We, we Robert talked about uh, Minnesota. Uh, you know, we had uh, initially uh, uh, Oregon with uh, physician-assisted death and the right to die. There's now 15 years of experience out there. We've learned a lot from that. You know, when that law was first passed, people said, oh, my Lord, they're going to be dropping like flies. This is terrible. It never happened. Um, a very reasonable number of people, like 100 each year get the medication from their physician about only half of them take it and i sometimes think that that's because they now have the control over the end of their life in their hands so they can live another day another week another month uh... that sort of thing washington state was second it simply copied uh... what oregon did 
Uh, in Montana was an interesting breakthrough with a Supreme Court decision that said a physician could not be prosecuted for um, hastening the end of a person's life. And uh, they did that without, uh, you know, any of the regulations and procedures that were part of the other two states. Um, so that was very different. And then we have recently had Vermont. So we have four states now that permit physician-assisted dying. Uh, so it's going to happen all around the country. Um, it's not going to happen in your lifetime or mine or in Martin's or any of ours, I think. I think it's going to take a very long time for this to happen state by state and uh, and you know the tremendous effort that went into getting this passed in Oregon and the fight that just went on for years and years and years but you know the good side is we're making progress and uh, we'll keep adding states we're close in New Jersey now uh, more states will come online uh, but while that is happening we just feel that as the volunteers of final exit, that we need to be there right now for the people who are suffering and need help. And, you know, there are other organizations who work on changing those laws. Uh, but because it will take a long time, an awful lot of people will suffer in the process while they wait. So the a couple, okay, so we've got Oregon, Washington, Montana, and Vermont, and then you said New Jersey is getting close. And in Minnesota, where would you say that is in the process? Oh, I think I'm confident that uh, that Robert Revis uh, represented this issue in the state of Georgia, took it to the Supreme Court, won it, uh, represented it in Arizona. Uh, nobody went to jail over that one, and uh, he now has uh, uh, the prosecution on the defense in defensive in Minnesota, and uh, they may not appeal. Uh, an appellate court decision, uh, they, Robert may wind up going to the Supreme Court again. But I'm confident that he will win. And I think that, that as other prosecutors around the United States look at the history of you know, being tested at the Supreme Court, going before a jury, in each case the people who bring these cases lose them. Uh, uh, so I, I don't think we're going to see a lot more prosecutions. At least I hope not, because the legal bills are expensive. <laughs> oh, and, and how are those financed? And is that through through membership in the organization? Then through donations. Um, it's interesting. It's like you know. It, it's like I want to say in some ways, it's like hospice. If hospice ever touched your life and helped you, supported mm -hmm. you, and supported your your dying member, uh, you wind up donating to that, leaving it in your will, setting up a bequest, that kind of thing. So. Members of Final Exit and the public at large uh, have, have supported us through donations. They've gotten us through these court fights, um, and they continue to. So uh, we survive really on donations. We ask people to join, become members, and uh, we say it's a $50 membership fee to join. If you can't afford $50, if you can only afford $5, we will take that. You know, just join. Mm -hmm. The money is not, uh, the money's not that important, but, uh, but we, we survive on donations and uh, and the belief of a lot of people that uh, this ultimate human right is one to support, just like you would support the American Cancer Society or the Civil Liberties Union or anything else, you know, support Final Exit Network and what it's trying to do. Okay. Lori, can I add to that? It's Robert. Please, please. Um, uh, one thing I'm very proud of as I kind of orchestrate all the work across the country in these various criminal prosecutions of Final Exit Network, um, I... I I find that in communities where we need help from local lawyers, the best uh, known names 
in criminal defense law, law, every place where we have a problem, jump in and offer to work for Final Exit Network because of their support for the cause for a tiny fraction of what they would have ordinarily been paid, uh, you know, to say represent a drug smuggling organization or all the kinds of, of criminal defense matters that most criminal defense lawyers handle. Uh, uh, there, there are so many examples, I don't want to name them, but, the, but in, in Atlanta and Arizona and Minnesota where we've had problems, uh, we have, have never had a jury ever convict anybody in Final Exit Network of anything. We've never had any Final Exit Network volunteer uh, enter into a guilty plea for anything but minor misdemeanors that were not assisting in a suicide. They were other something else, something extraneous, just to throw them a bone. And uh, and we have, in every community where we've had those kind of problems, um, um, the biggest names in the community uh, among criminal defense lawyers uh, jump right in and, and work for a small fraction of what they would have otherwise made. And I only get a small fraction of what, uh, what I would otherwise made for my role. It's... Uh, it's a, a real sight to see that, uh, that we're, we're able to work as inexpensively um, as we do. Another thing uh, worth mentioning here, in, in the context of the contributions and membership dues that are that are asked for, uh, that, that people pay to become members of Final Exit Network, I've occasionally had some people, totally uninformed people, try to suggest that that's got something to do with whether or not a member can obtain uh, support in their exits, in their self-deliverance. Um, there's no connection at all. Most members of Final Exit Network contribute because they want to contribute to the general right to die movement, and it has nothing specific to do with any anticipation that they're ever going to ask for uh, uh, support in, their, uh, in hastening their own deaths. And people do not pay anything to Final Exit Network uh, that's directly related to the hastening of their own deaths. It's just contributions to help support the... the uh, the work of Final Exit Network and the movement, and when the day comes that anybody calls and seeks support uh, in their own death, there is there is no uh, there is no charge whatsoever. Okay, wonderful. Well, that's okay. that's good to know. Go ahead. Can I give you a little rundown about how Minnesota fits into the scheme across the country of these laws? Yes, please. The, there are 37, as I mentioned once before, there are 37 states that have a statute on their books that makes it a crime to assist in suicide. There are three states that now have, uh, as you know, Oregon, uh, uh, Washington, and Vermont that now have statutes authorizing physician aid and dying. But in each of those three states, there are elaborate protocols to make sure that the physician uh, aid and dying uh, program is is uh, fully complied with as far as our safeguards and everything. And even in two out of three of those states, there still is on the books a law that makes it a crime to assist in a suicide for anybody who's not operating under those laws. So people often get these concepts mixed up as if to suggest that in Washington and Oregon, it's okay for anybody to assist in in, uh, in what is referred to in those laws as suicide. That's that's not the case. It still would be a crime. For, there's no statute in Vermont, but there is one in, in uh in each of Oregon and Washington prohibiting assistance in the suicide unless the it's a doctor and a patient operating under the constraints of that law. In Minnesota, the law specifically says that uh, uh, advising, encouraging, or assisting in a suicide are a crime. And 
to the extent that they have the words advising uh, and encouraging in the statute, those, those are the concepts, those are the laws that prohibit, that are, are, are contrary to the uh, free speech rights granted by the First Amendment to the Constitution. And those parts have been struck, stricken down. So in Minnesota, there still is no law on physician aid and dying, and there still is a law that prohibits uh, assisting in a suicide. But we think that the prosecution of the uh, four final, or I guess there's only two left, final exit network uh, uh, members in Minnesota are going to uh, either not not be prosecuted or are going to fail because the state has no evidence that anybody was assisted in in a death. The, the state is proceeding only on evidence that the that the Minnesota law was violated to the extent that it that it prohibited advising or encouraging in a suicide. Having said that, I should note that Final Exit Network never advises anybody in favor of of, uh, of hastening their own death, and uh, Final Exit Network never encourages anybody to uh, hasten their own death, but the words uh, advise and encourage are so uh, wide open to different interpretations that practically anything anybody says in Minnesota could be interpreted as uh, as being w within you know what's prohibited by the the law against advising and encouraging, and that's why the law has been stricken down to that extent. It's very interesting because how many laws are out there that we don't know about that, you know, if you advise or encourage and, and, you know, it could be viewed that I'm advising or encouraging by having the conversation. And I, exactly. I you know, I, I don't view it at that, at that at all. I view it as information and a conversation that needs to be had. You know, I was at a, a funeral. I use this as an example of a young girl who took her life. And um, it was very sad, and she had um, some mental illness, and it was a friend of mine, and it was probably one of the most beautiful ceremonies I've ever been to, um, and, and some people were really uncomfortable with it, but I was so appreciative because the pastor talked about, you know, why she took her life and how she took her life. And he was very passionate that this has to stop, that we have to we have to understand and try to help and support people um, as much as possible so that they can live as long as possible. And um, it was it was very interesting because people don't know what the next guy is going through and what it's like to walk in somebody's shoes. And, um, you know, you, you had talked um, – about with with people, you know, they were worried that, you know, if this law passed, you know, all of a sudden everybody's going to start killing themselves, you know. <laughs> and that's and, not And it. it's been proven nonsense, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think Michael said that earlier. You know, I just want the choice. I want the ability. Um, and I think we'll hear that from, from others. Um, you know, it's kind of like abortion. Women want the right to make a decision of that which affects them and their body. And, um, you know, it, so it's, it's, it's such a personal thing, um, yet it's such a difficult decision to make. And, you know, whenever we have a difficult decision, it's nice to be able to bounce those ideas off people and to talk with others and to have support. And for us to avoid that, I think, just adds more strain and burden to the person in that position contemplating all of this. And I, I don't think that's fair from a humanity standpoint. 
Um, you know, but that's you know that's how how I look at it. Um, Frank, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Um, again, I appreciate so much um, of your time for for both you and Robert. This has just been wonderful information. Well, I'm happy to learn from from everybody else. There was one point before which I think is so important and almost has has polar counter arguments to it. You know, it is so important, as Derek said and Martin said and you have said and Robert said, to have these conversations with your loved ones so that they understand what it is that they, what that you want and that they will support you um, in your decision. It does, however, on the other side, come down to your decision. You know, you may have a number of, of siblings uh, who say, no, I don't agree with that, uh, you know. Well, fine for them to express their opinions and for you to impress upon them uh, as well as possible that this is something that you want and if they love you, you will honor it. But when there is a difference in family members, it is ultimately the individual human right. And we find as we work with people, in so many cases, the end of their life is like a living wake and it's a celebration, if you will. But in other cases, it's not. In other cases, um, they're forced to die alone because family members disagree. Uh, you know, they threaten to stop them if they knew they would stop them. Maybe you're hospitalized or Baker acted for psychiatric observation, uh, those sorts of things. So it does finally come down to your decision. And for those people who find themselves in that situation, we don't think that anybody should have to die alone so that we take it one step farther and we say, if you want us to be there with you when you end your life, we will be there because we don't think that anybody should die alone. So the conversations are so important, you know, putting your wishes in advance directives, in living wills, in health care surrogate um, forms, all of that uh, is very, very important to do, uh, but it does finally come down to your decision, and we think that that, uh, that you have that right in spite of however well-intentioned your family and friends may be. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. You know, we talk, you know, I, I mean, I remember sitting down with my parents and doing their living wills, and we, you know, the things that were brought up really were, uh, more physical aspects, you know, in terms of if I can't do this and if I can't do that. But it it, it didn't cover um, some of the mental um, and cognitive abilities. And just because we can't see the struggles doesn't mean that they're not there. Um, one of my favorite um, visuals was uh, Michael Ellenbog, and we were talking on Dementia Chats about uh, him traveling in the airport and him asking for help. And they're saying, well, get in the wheelchair. And he's like, I can walk. <laughs> I just need directions. I need someone to take me from A to B. But I can walk. And And as a society, if we can't see it, we don't think it's there. And we try to you know, make people fit into this mold. And I think I think the mold has to morph and it has to change to meet the people's needs. So, again, I really thank you both so much for your time and, and energy and all that you're doing um, to let people have choice. So I thank you very much. Um, and if people want to get a hold of you, they can just go to the finalexitnetwork.org. Is that correct? That's correct. FinalExitNetwork.org. FinalExitNetwork is one word, and you will find there the forms, the contact numbers, all of that. 
If anyone wants to call for information, uh, they can do that toll-free at 866-654-9156, and you will get one of our coordinators, most all of whom are psychiatric nurses, who will have that initial conversation with you. But, but uh, you know, people join uh, uh, not for really, as, as Robert said, as an insurance policy for the end of life, but because they believe in it. And uh, if you believe in the cause, you know, we'd like to have you uh, join as well. So, and you can do all of that on the website. Very easy, just with a click of the mouse. Okay. And um, again, thank you so much for all you're doing and spending time with us this morning. Appreciate it. Have a wonderful week. Thank you. Thank you. It's been Bye. a pleasure. Bye now. Um, I am going to pull in our our next uh, expert, and this is a person who is living with the disease. Miriam Marquez is a mother of four daughters and was an attorney. She was diagnosed uh, with a familiar, uh, familiar form of Alzheimer's four years ago, and she's an advocate for a cure, and her activities with the Alzheimer's Western and Central uh, Washington State chapter include being a board of directors, um, early stage advisory council, the public policy committee. She is also a peer-to-peer advisor and an Alzheimer's Association ambassador to Senator Patty Murray and her staff. Miriam's interests include theater. She is a stage and independent film actress and uh, other forms of arts. She loves traveling. She just returned from a trip from Kenya and Tanzania, and she loves long walks. And I'm just thrilled to have Miriam with us today. How are you doing today, Miriam? I'm doing great. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you taking time to be part of this show because I I do. I really think this is just such an important conversation for us all to have. And I would love to hear what your thoughts are about living with uh, dementia and being being able to have the dignity of choosing when and how you want to die. So what are your thoughts about about this whole conversation we're having? Well, as you mentioned, I have a familial form of Alzheimer's. Um, my father was one of 13 children. He and about five or six of his siblings died with Alzheimer's. Uh, I have older cousins. Uh, most of whom have Alzheimer's, uh, some don't. And um, when I came to a four-way stop near my home on my way home from from my law office, uh, all of a sudden I didn't know whether to turn left or right or go straight. Uh, uh, I panicked. It scared me. I went to my doctor and I said, look, this happened. And Alzheimer's runs in my family. They did all kinds of tests. And he said, Miriam, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, in the following six months, every once in a while, I would get lost while driving. And uh, then on Thanksgiving Day, I went to my daughter's house, had a great time, and as I was getting ready to leave, I put my hand on the doorknob, and all of a sudden, I didn't know where I was. Uh, I told my family. And... Um, it, it scared me. Uh, that's when I decided that I, I needed to do something. Um, I became active in the Alzheimer's Association. I've spent my time advocating for a cure. 
I'm not necessarily for me, but I've got children and I've got grandchildren. We need a, I need a cure. We need a cure for, for you know, for, for my grandkids and my kids. Um, I spend my time advocating, um, and I and I've, I volunteer as you as you mentioned um, for the association in many ways. Uh, I watched my mother as she cared for my father, and saw him suffer until he died. Um, almost as I mentioned, almost half of his siblings died with Alzheimer's. Uh, I don't want to die. I love life. I have an active social life, but I have thought long and hard about what if a cure or something stops the progression, doesn't come along. Uh, Before I began to show symptoms, I joked that I would uh, put on the mantle of, of my fireplace something to take that would kill me with a note that read, Miriam, if you don't know what this is, take it. Um, But there are many of us with Alzheimer's who live alone. Uh, And because of my advocacy for a cure and uh, being a member um, of many organizations, um, I've had discussions and the majority of the of the people that I know uh, say they have no desire to continue once they are unable to care for them for themselves. But of course, the question is, how will I know when the time is? I joke it's when I can no longer uh, uh, know how to wipe my butt. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do have a living will that states that I. Um, want no artificial means to keep me alive. Okay. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I look at my, my mom's situation. You know, she hasn't needed any artificial means, but she needs total care. And so, you know, when we went through and did her living will, um, you know, we put in all of those little normal ticklers that people think of, you know, if I get pneumonia, don't don't give me the medicine, just let me die at that point and blah, 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 blah. Um, but we really didn't have um, a discussion in terms of, you know, the what if, what if, what if my body is healthy, but I my brain's just not um, connecting the dots um, so that I can partake you know, in it the way that I used to, Um, you know, we didn't, we didn't have, you know, I wasn't aware of all of this stuff and I don't know if it would have changed the family's decision or not. You know, my mom was Catholic and so she's, uh, you know, I I think suicide would be very uh, difficult thing for her to, to come to. Um, Yet she was also one that never wanted to be a burden. And I think that that, is one of the things that that I hear over and over from so many living with the disease is I don't want to be a burden. I, I don't want to have to have someone wipe my butt, like you said. You know, I, I just don't want to go there. And um, so have you talked with your, your kids on this? I would I would assume that you have since we're on the radio with this, but maybe not. <laughs> no, absolutely. Everyone, I mean, my everyone in my family 
all of my friends are very clear on uh, what it is that I want. And how did they react to to the conversation? Well, you know, I'm a very independent person. I have been that way my whole life. I'm very. I'm, I have a strong will, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they they respect my they respect my wishes. They understand my wishes, and mm-hmm. so I I feel comfortable with that. Okay. Now here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, you know, there is a fine line. There's a fog. I call it a fog, but it's really a fine line. I mean, if if I if how am I? The question is, how am I going to determine when it's is when is the time for me to take the pills or whatever it is that's going to be? And um, I've joked, as, uh, you know. Like I said, if, if I put a, a message on that says, Miriam, if you don't know what this is, take it. Well, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's going to happen. Uh, how will I know? Um, I don't want, you know, I love life. I'm having, this is probably the best time of my life. I'm having such a great time. I don't want it to end. That's why I'm such a big advocate for a cure. I'm out there shouting at the top of my lungs to help find a cure, at least something to stop the progression, not necessarily for me, but for my kids and my grandchildren. But how am I going to know when it's time to do it? Um, I think about this often, and uh, but I don't know whether I will be successful or not. And I will, you know, I would be extremely disappointed uh, if there's a, a part of me that is aware, I would be extremely disappointed if I miss my opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, and and I can I can understand that. That's one of the things I know that that Michael um, mentions. And Michael, I'm going to pull you in in for this. Um, what are your thoughts on what what Miriam is saying? Well, I got to tell you, Miriam couldn't have said it any better. I mean, that that's the big concern. It's like, will we be able to remember to do this when we just start to get into those bad stages that we really want to do it? Because mm-hmm. that's the whole point behind this. You know, and I agree with Miriam. This is a great time of our lives, even though we're probably struggling with so many different issues. But it's my God. It's like when you get to those bad stages is when we want to hopefully remember. And I remember every day I, I put it in my head. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and I think about this every single day that I'm going to take my life just because I want it to stay fresh in my mind that I hope when the day comes, I'm still going to remember. But Mm -hmm. we don't know that. And that's why I think it's so important that if we do miss that time frame, that assisted suicide is allowed so somebody can say, okay, Mike, this was the day you were waiting for. I understand you no longer remember to do that, but you need to take this. This is why mm-hmm. it's so important for us to change things. So Miriam and I don't have to take our lives much sooner than necessary. And I think that that's a really important part because that's so silly to to die when you're still able to engage just because that that's the law. You know that you know you're competent to make that decision. It just is, um, you know, and able to make that choice for yourself. Um, when 
I mean, that's the whole point of a living will is when you're unable, someone can step in and make that choice for you and assist you in that process. And we're saying now, you know, with uh, with dementia that, oops, that doesn't count. You know, when you're not competent to make that decision, you can't, you know, you can't predetermine that choice. And so it's it's kind of interesting, um, you know. And again, I, I I'm still not quite sure where I stand with it all. I, I think there's pros and cons, and and I, and I think I don't think any of us can make this decision, you know, until we really, you know, have to have to deal with it. I mean, we we think we know how we might react, but we don't really know until we're in in those shoes. Um, and this can be a long long journey like it was for my mom of 30 you know 30 years and still going i mean who who ever would have known um you know with all of this time um miriam is there anything else that you want to add i know that you have to get hopping and i want to be respectful of that uh no i'm not really i don't have anything other to um, more to say other than um i really encourage your listeners to uh, contribute to the Alzheimer's Association or or whatever other organization that they support to help find a cure or, or mm-hmm. something to stop the progression. It is so critical. Um, if if we don't find a cure, it will bankrupt um, the United States. Uh, the cost of caring uh, for people as baby boomers age, it's going to be um, a catastrophe if a cure is not found. So thank you so much for 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 your show. Greatly greatly appreciated. Well, thanks for joining us, Miriam. You have a wonderful <clears throat> wonderful day. Um, thank before, you. Before before I pull in our next guest, I just do want to highlight um, some basic information here. Um, our last radio show was on love in the land of dementia and what has love made you do and. It's a real. It was a really interesting conversation um, of someone who has written a book and the stories, and she read a couple of them, are really going to make you think, how do you love? How do you act in the land of dementia? Uh, it's very, very insightful. And then there's a, a woman who um, created a product, um, Remember Me Bibs, um, that's a, a very unique product as well, which was done out of love. Our next radio show, of course, will be next Tuesday at the same time, and we're going to talk about the reality of Alzheimer's disease. And we're going to have author Kathy Borey with us and neurologist Daniel Potts and his wife Ellen, and they're going to be discussing the Let Me Be Your Memory program, which is the first ever middle school language arts Alzheimer's awareness uh, curriculum. So that's pretty exciting. If you weren't able to join us on our Dementia Chats webinar last uh, last week on the 22nd, we had a really good conversation on becoming dementia friendly and aware and what the heck does that mean and I would encourage you to watch that and share that with others because I thought it was quite powerful and the insights of our experts living with the disease I I thought were phenomenal. Our next Dementia Chats will be November 12th and again you're all invited to join those are, are free 
Um, on the blog, there are a couple of things I want to highlight. On the 27th, our intern, Michelle, did an article called Happy Hour, which was kind of a, a fun little article. Um, I did one on the 24th, which had to do with uh, the Verizon Boomer Party that I had. We gave away about $1,000 worth of product and why that was important to caregivers. There's just some new technology out there that, that I wasn't aware of that Verizon even had. Um, I just thought they sold phones, so I was kind of surprised with all of that. And then on, um, there's also an article posted on October 22nd, which is an announcement of a free webinar that will be held November 7th by the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation um, with founder Dr. Dharma and actress and health activist Muriel Hemingway and myself. That'll be a 90-minute um, webinar that I think will be extremely informative. And again, that is free, and you can find all the information uh, that you you want on that show and can go ahead and get registered. Now, one of our guests we're not going to be able is not going to be able to make it today, and that is Jim Crabtree. And if you're not familiar with Jim, um, he was on the Today Show with Maria Shriver. His uh, wife had the disease, as well as his mother, and his father took their lives and his. And um, there is a video on the blog uh, that talks about this. So if you go to this episode on the blog, um, there is a link to that. But I would encourage you just to see what his thoughts are from from the other side um, of this whole thing, because that was quite the catastrophe. Um, but he views it as a gift. So I just wanted to let you let you know on that. Um, we do have um, Steve Potteth who's um, commented in the chat box. He said, I just wanted to let you know that, uh, whoops, somebody else just bumped the comment here, uh, that you and I have talked numerous times about um, making a video um, to stipulate um, when is your time and how do you how do you want to um, how do you want to stop driving? And we've talked about this, but this could be uh, for end of life as well, um, something that is just really clear. So not just putting it in writing, uh, but to but to go ahead and and make a video video of it. Um, Rose is saying, I'm sorry, but I don't agree with assisted suicide. I believe a person is here for their time for a reason, whether it's for them or those around them. I also don't agree to keep a person alive with drugs or other means. So, and I, I really appreciate your comments, Rose, because I think there's many people out there uh, like you. And again, um, I really struggle with this because I think for myself, I would say, you know, I would like that choice because I'm just a big independent girl that I like all my choices. Um, but I, I would have hated to have missed out on the moments with my mom because we made that choice, because even though she's not with us a lot cognitively, when she is, they are so magnificent that I can't, I can't even put them into words. And some may say that that's selfish. I don't know. It's, it's one of those things that we all have to um, work out for ourselves. Um, next, I'd like to pull into the show uh, Stanley Terman, who's a Ph.D., 
an MD and psychiatrist, and is the medical director of Caring Advocates and the author of The Best Way to Say Goodbye in Peaceful Transitions, Stories of Success and Compassion. Plan now, die later. And um, he also has My Way Cards, uh, which is a natural dying living will cards, a tool that generates a clear and specific living will to overcome some challenges of advanced dementia, even if there's no plug to pull, which is kind of what I was talking about earlier when, you know, it's not a feeding tube and it's not... Uh, not uh, something that's keeping your heart alive. You know, how do you how do you do this? Um, he has a um, YouTube channel as well, and I think if you put in "Plan Now, Die Later" peacefully, uh, he'll have some information for you there as well. Um, so I'm going to pull in Stan and uh, Dr. Stanley Terman. How are you doing today? Very well. Thank you for having me on the show. I think it's an important show and. Uh, uh, I have many comments to make about the presentations that we've just heard. Um, the most important of which is I've heard the word opportunity so many times as if there was no other alternative but to take your life early because you obviously don't have the mental and probably physical wherewithal to get out of the stage of advanced dementia. By then it will be too late to have assisted uh, to take your own life. It will even be too late to have assisted suicide. And let me explain why. If someone does not have mental capacity, a sound mind, and another person says, here is something that you can uh, drink that will let you die, or here is a, uh, a mechanism, uh, an apparatus that will let you die, because the patient lacks capacity to make a voluntary and willful decision because he doesn't understand or appreciate what is about to happen, the person who's giving this assistance is not giving it for suicide, is actually causing the death, is, will be guilty of manslaughter or murder. Manslaughter may be a little bit easier because the patient may have asked for it previously, but it's still murder. Only in the country of Holland does the law allow euthanasia for patients who have advanced dementia. But the physicians there will not, by and large, comply with a living will that says, I want euthanasia if I'm in the advanced dementia. Stage. Why won't they? Because there is not a sufficient amount of conversation contemporaneously. The Dutch doctors have been trained to have a contemporaneous conversation to focus on two things. Is the suffering unbearable? Is there no other way other than to hasten dying? That conversation is impossible in advanced dementia when the suffering is unbearable. But the catch-22 is when the conversation is possible, there is no uh, suffering that is, uh, as Miriam and, and Michael have had, this is one of the most important times in their lives. They're enjoying it. And no one would want them to hasten their dying at that point. So my caring advocates 
and the natural dying living well, and my entire career is devoted to reducing the suffering of patients and their loved ones who face the challenge of advanced dementia, of a prolonged dying that, in which they would be stuck without insisting or requiring premature dying, without taking this so-called window of opportunity. The attorney who, uh, Robert Rivas, said, yes, we do have a right to commit suicide. And um, Kavanaugh was very eloquent in saying to think about it. And so did Derek Humphrey. Think about it. Discuss it with your loved ones. But there was one glaring omission that incensed me, I have to tell you, and that is you cannot make a voluntary, willful, prudent decision unless you know what all of the options are. And there is an alternative to premature dying. You don't have to miss these wonderful years. In fact, the alternative is not, it answers the question that Miriam and others have brought up. It answers the question of when do you want to think that it is time has, may have come so that you no longer want to prolong your dying. The question of when, it can be solved. And it's a very, very important question. If you go on the website caringadvocates.org and you click on learn before you decide, you'll see a free demonstration of a tool that's actually free in itself, although a small charge is made for the living will. And there you can learn what it is like to live in the advanced stage of dementia and other terminal illnesses. And there you can learn about the end-of-life option called natural dying that can even help patients for whom there is no plug to pull, patients who don't have a sound mind to make a decision at that point. And then you can sort the cards to generate a unique, personalized, natural dying living will to memorialize your wishes, to tell others when that time has come for the consideration of stopping treatment that is no longer benefiting you, that is only prolonging your dying, only prolonging your suffering, only prolonging the burden of your loved ones. You can live through the early stages of dementia and enjoy life tremendously. You can live through the middle stage of dementia and it may be different. You have different values, different pleasures in life, but it's still very valuable. But you can pinpoint the time by making a decision, 48 decisions, one decision at a time. You can say, for this particular symptom or unwanted behavior or a conflict with long-term values, this I want treat and feed or this I want natural dying. And natural dying is the key to how it all works. How does it work? Natural dying is four things. First, no one will continue to assist you if you have come, become dependent upon such help to put, to put food and fluid into your mouth. That is considered to be an invasion of bodily integrity. And you can say, I definitely do not want someone to violate me, to violate my body, the criteria. 
or at least I want my proxy and my physician to consider that. Secondly, you will still be offered food and fluid to place it in front of you, which is very important for the moral rightness of this whole scenario. Because if food and fluid is in front of me, my mind is so devastated by dementia that I do not understand how to take that food and fluid and to put it into my own mouth, then I will be allowed to die from the underlying disease of dementia. The third is that, of course, all other higher tech medical technology will be withdrawn and withhold. But what happens so frequently in dementia is you have a fairly functioning body and a mind that's just gone. So those aren't even present. But if they are, they would be, they would be eliminated, discontinued. And then the last thing is comfort care. Now, some people say, oh, it must be horrible to fast, to have no water, to have no food. That's not the case. I have fasted myself twice. I've been at the bedside of people who have um, gone the last chapter of their life, natural dying. And it is very peaceful. It is very comfortable. Of course, you do need to treat thirst. That is a symptom of dry mouth, which is very treatable. And caring advocates send, can send anyone who wants a thirst-reducing aid kit. And it has sprays and liquids and drops and salves and uh, all, gum and all kinds of things that allow you to completely take away the symptom of thirst that's uncomfortable. Hunger is taken care of by itself. Nature does that. Because when you fast, you go into a metabolic state of ketosis, which provides you some euphoria, a feeling of goodness, and hunger is just wiped out. And I know that from personal experience. So you can ask for natural dying in advance by specifying when, and then you don't have to endure premature dying. No laws need to be changed. You will never get into a conflict of uh, court, uh, expensive court battles. The whole idea is for it to be private, to be peaceful, and to be effective. And okay. it actually works. Wonderful. Um, Stan, I'm going to ask, um, how, do, how do people get a hold of you? I know you have a few different um, websites. Um, okay. CaringAdvocates.org, is that correct? That's correct. And, and we have, and, uh, that, and that, that, that website can lead you to the um, YouTube videos to explain this. It can also lead you to the Learn Before You Decide demonstration of the Natural Dying Living Will. And you can also call me at and my office at 800-64-PEACE, which is 800-647-3223. And you can email me, email me at drterman, D-R-T-E-R-M-A-N, at gmail.com. Wonderful. Well, I appreciate you joining us today and sharing everything. I know that you have a Encourage Living Will survey project going on, too, and so people can uh, talk with you regarding regarding that. But you'll get lots of 
uh, a variety of information um, off of his site and, and feel free to to reach out to Stan and I again I, I thank you for joining us today we just have a few others I need to get in this hour has just gone by or this two hours has gone by so fast so again I, I thank you very much for taking the time to be with us and, and sharing um, with our audience some other tools that they may want to consider um, in this process I'm going to go ahead and pull in. Lori, and Thank I, I you. Think that, um, I think if people would understand that there is another option to premature dying and that they need to consider it. Now, there may be some people who want to give up a few years of life, and um, it is legal for them to do so, provided that they are fully informed. But in my opinion... It's a little complicated, a little bit more effort to uh, complete the natural dying living will. When I talk about other living wills, I uh, often state that it's like the seven-second solution. It's free, it's fast, but it's not effective. And the people from Final Exit Network admitted that their living will is not a legal document. It's just an indication. My life... Our documents, the ironclad strategy of the Caring Advocates Program, has been reviewed by the top health law attorneys in the country and has been strengthened by uh, knowledge of the law that's in statute and the decisions of the courts, which is called case law. It, It recognizes the obligations of physicians. For example, if they don't honor your living will, it states right on the natural dying living will, dear doctor, please note, if you don't honor my wishes by writing orders that are consistent, you may be subject to becoming sued. You'll lose your immunity according to the law of your state. And you could be sued for malpractice. You could be sued as a criminal in a criminal court for battery and your a medical board may take sanctions against your license. So everything we've done is to make it as absolutely uh, as sure as you can possibly be that this will work for you. And such confidence is necessary because otherwise people might say, if I'm not sure, I better take my life now rather than later. One more thing, because you mentioned you were Catholic, and I'll end with this, is that the natural dying procedure has been reviewed by some of the top Catholic um, bioethicists in the country. And it is consistent if it's done the way we prescribe, prescribe, it is consistent with the teachings of the church. It is moral, it is legal, it is ethical, and it is practical, and it is consistent with even the teachings of the Catholic church. We do okay. not... I thank thank you, Stan, but I do need to to move on to um, our next guest so that we get everybody in and people can go to his website for more information. Again, um, everybody's views are a little bit different, and uh, and that's what the conversation is about, looking at choices and decisions and and, um, just having the conversation. Um, about death. It's good for all of us to have wills and living wills, and um, this is a topic that's very important. I'm going to pull in um, next. Um, Let's see. It looks like we lost Mary Bailey. I'm not seeing her on my radar here anymore, so I'm going to go ahead and 
pull in Dina Dotson. Dina was diagnosed with Lewy body with probable Alzheimer's at the age of 47. She's working hard to decrease the stigma attached to uh, dementia. And she, along with uh, Michael, like I said, are both uh, experts on our Dementia Chats webinar. Welcome, Dina. How are you doing today? Fine. Thank you, Lori. So what are, you, what are your thoughts with this whole conversation here? Um, I I was happy. Uh, well, I had actually called um, Final Exit at one point, and so I'm a little bit familiar with how they they work and talked with the woman and was contemplating, you know, possibly um, using, well, I wanted more information from them. Mm-hmm. And so I was, um, and so there's that aspect of it. Um, living in Oregon, I I really read in depth the Death with Dignity Act, and I even called um, there the the part of the government that runs that and talked with the. I had a very interesting conversation with the woman there. And of course, um, somebody with dementia—they really can't utilize um, the the law at all unless they have a second terminal illness, in addition to the. Um, and it has to be, you know, they can't lose their mental capacity. So, it, unless I get cancer, that's you know, in while I'm still mentally capable, I can't utilize the law. And so I just, it's been a very interesting topic, and I've been very happy to be, to have, you know, listened to it. And I just have very strong um, feelings that it is an individual choice and one that I think should be available to anyone who would want to use it. I I have also had um, talks with all my family members, my father, my sister, my husband, and they are all very much aware of the way I feel. Okay. And how how did your how did your family take this conversation? How were they with that? They're sad. Um mm-hmm. they're they're very sad that, you know, of the whole, you know, they're sad that I have this disease, they're sad that but they have all stated to me that they understand. Mhm. And so I've been very thankful for that aspect of it. I've had no family member say, oh, my goodness, you know, what are you thinking? I've had none of that. They've all understood um, maybe because I did have a mother that died of of cancer that died a a kind of a long, drawn-out, painful death. They're Mm -hmm. a little bit more understanding of the, even though this isn't cancer, but it's still pretty long and drawn out you know, that I might not want to go that route. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's. I mean, none of this stuff is ever um, an easy decision. And but, I, but I'm so proud that people are having the conversation. I think it's critical. I know even with my folks, when my dad had brain cancer, my mom with her dementia, you know, we went in and we did the, the pre-planning of the funeral and all of that. And, you know, we really had some in-depth conversations of what do you want this to look like? You know, how, 
What do you want? You know, what do you want your obit to say? What picture do you want us to use? What um, do you want to be cremated or, 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 you know, or or buried? I mean, all these conversations we don't have, and right. it's critical information in order to honor the person's life to begin with. And and this is a huge, huge piece, and we don't always understand the struggles that that people are having um, because, again, especially with dementia, you look okay from the outside. You know, you guys hear that all the time. Well, you look fine. You know? yeah. and, um, and so I think that that's great um, that, that you're having this conversation. Do you, too, talk to a lot of people with dementia that are having this kind of underground conversation that's not really out in the public? Do you hear a lot of conversation about this topic? I I bring it up every now and then, and I've had different reactions across the board. I've had, you know, with people that have the disease, it's kind of not really surprising, but there's always an understanding of why you would, you know, why I would want, I feel this way. Mm-hmm. Some people agree, some people you know, don't necessarily feel comfortable with it, and and I respect it all. Again, it it you know I there's one thing that I always try to you know stress is that it's so individual. It's what every individual would want to choose, and that's so. Yes, I've I've had a lot of conversation, and it's it's been a wide variety, but but the very Bottom line is there's always an understanding of why they understand why a person would choose this. Okay. Okay, wonderful. Anything else that you want to um want to address or time is just running just ticking <laughs> off the clock here. I we might have to have a follow-up show on this one. Well, I was I was just happy to be on the show with, you know, these people that are a part of it and and attempt to have the conversation and and learn. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dina. You're always you're just a blessing. You have such great insights and I appreciate so much all that you you share with us um on the radio, on the on the the dementia chats, on the social network groups that you have. Um you just are so open about living with this disease and what it's like. So, thank you very much for all you do for all of us. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pull Robert back in. He had a comment that he wanted to make, and Robert, I can give you like a minute um, if you wanted to make a comment off of something you heard. Yeah, the doctor from uh, the Caring Advocates Program, I just it, some of the things he said about the law are just completely untenable. The the uh, there's no way that any healthcare institution could legally discontinue using a hand to put food and drink in the mouth of somebody unless the person is competent and is requiring it at that time. An advanced signature on a so-called advanced directive directing that somebody not be fed when they can't use their hands anymore, when they're not competent, could never be enforced in any state. And the advice you've heard is going to run the very serious risk of somebody getting beyond the window of opportunity and then finding that, it, that the, the proposal for this uh, natural death thing doesn't work and leave you in exactly the position you wanted to avoid. 
Okay. Well, I, I thank you for that that clarification. And again, we encourage everybody to you know check out all the information and um, you know make their decisions. And you know you should. I, I mean, when you're whenever you're dealing with a will or healthcare declaration, you should be also talking with an attorney um, because laws are different in every state. And it's in, you know if you're going to do this, you want to do it right and um, make sure that things are are accurate. And that the understanding um, that you're understanding things um, in the way that they'll really happen, because sometimes our our perceptions of others' words um, fall fall in a little different place. So I appreciate that clarification very much. So thank you, Robert. Um, sure. Michael, I'm going to go ahead and pull you in. We've got just a couple of uh, minutes to wrap up here. Uh, Kathy um, Pure was not able to. Um, connect with us. Uh, she lost her connection, as was Mary Bailey. Uh, Kathy was going to talk about hospice, which is just an absolute wonderful option for people to have in terms of um, having uh, you know, comfort in the end of life. Um, but we'll, we'll do another show on, uh, on hospice in and of itself. We do have some in, uh, in the archives as well if people are interested, but that is definitely an option for end of life. Um, but Michael, what are your thoughts in terms of wrapping up this, this program? Well, I, I guess for, for, while I have this terrible disease, uh, I, like many others, we would like to live life to the fullest for many more years. We just don't want to be around when it gets bad. While I believe this is not for everyone, people should have the right to choose and not be denied the right to die with what I call dignity. This is all we want. I keep praying that I get a serious form of cancer. That would at least take care of my life much and make it much easier for me to die. Um, so I, I hope people hear, hear us today and help us change. I agree. I agree. It's uh it is about having choice. It is about having open conversations. It's about removing stigmas and um we we all should have the right to live with dignity. Um that shouldn't be denied to to anybody. So, uh you know, my hope for today's discussion is that that people learn something new. Um, they may not have agreed with it. Um, again, I'm not asking for that. I'm just asking that you listen. Listen to the thoughts of others. Listen to the options available. And um, have the discussion. You know, even if you are adamant and it's a, a, against your religion and, you know, this is, this is the way you want it, make that clear to others. You know, that's the whole point of this is making your wishes clear to others um, so that you can live the life that you intend. And, um, again, everybody's intentions are, are just a little bit different. Um, so, I, again, I, I thank you all so much for, for being part of this. Michael, do you want to go ahead and, and plug your, your website and your book, too? Um, I've given everybody else an opportunity to, to plug theirs, so feel free. Sure. My book is called uh, From the Inside. I'm sorry. It's uh, From the Corner Office to Alzheimer's. And my website is michaelellenbogen.com, and that's Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-E-L-L-E-N-B-O-G-E-N, -L -L -E -L -L 
E-N-B-O-G-E-N.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you all for listening. We would love to hear if you have comments. Uh, go to the blog, alzheimerspeaks.com. Uh, you, can, you can get to the blog from our main website. And note your comments. We'd love to hear, hear the conversation. And maybe we have to have a follow-up show on this. Uh, there's multiple sides to, to the coin here. And, again, Alzheimer's Speaks is about raising everyone's voice. Uh, so we would love to hear, hear your thoughts and your comments about living with dignity. And um, we'll talk soon. Next show is next Tuesday at, uh, at the same time. So bye now, and thanks for, thanks for being part of the conversation. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families, too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.